Hello, you're listening to the Northern Agenda podcast, bringing you the big stories that matter to the north of England from outside the Westminster bubble. I'm Rob Parsons, a political journalist based in Leeds, and for anyone interested in the politics of our region, there's really only one story in town this week. That is the long-awaited and long-delayed report into the murky goings-on at Teesworks, the flagship regeneration project in the northeast of England. The headline news, at least if you're a Conservative supporter of the scheme, is that the review cleared those involved of corruption and illegality. But the 97-page document was not a clean bill of health, and in fact had a shopping list as long as your arm of failings in the way the project is being run. It came out two days ago, and the slanging match over the report's findings is still going on as we record this podcast. So I wanted to ask the question, what next? for Teesworks, and I've got three great local experts to do it. Jen Williams from the Financial Times, who's reporting, brought some of these issues into the open. Graham Whitfield, who is the North East editor of Business Live, and Jack Shaw, a local government expert who specialises in examining the inner workings of our local authorities. Guys, how, how, are, we, how are we doing? All right, tired. I can imagine. I can imagine. Well, it's good. To, it's good to have you all. But just before we launch into discussing the report, I'll just do a little explainer for those who haven't been following it about what Teesworks actually is. It's a huge area of land, four thousand five hundred acres, making it one of the largest brownfield industrial sites in Europe, south of the River Tees, which includes the former Redcar Steelworks that closed in 2015. The whole site was acquired by the public body, the South Tees Development Corporation, in 2020 after a compulsory purchase led by Ben Houchin, the Conservative Mayor of the Tees Valley. There are hopes the area will become a leading industrial site focused on clean energy and advanced manufacturing. And so far, hundreds of millions of pounds of public money has been sunk into the site to get it ready for projects like the world's largest factory, for the manufacture of offshore wind monopiles. But there have been growing concerns over how Teesworks, which is a joint venture with two local developers, Chris Musgrave and Martin Corney, is being run, who precisely is benefiting, and what seems to be a worrying lack of scrutiny over where huge amounts of taxpayer money are heading. Last May, after high-profile reports by the likes of the Financial Times and Private Eye and claims of industrial-scale corruption by a local MP in the Commons, Michael Gove ordered a review of the scheme to be carried out by three senior local government figures. And as well as the questions of accountability, there are big political considerations. Ben Houchin is the Tories' poster boy in the North, the region's only Conservative Metro Mayor, and someone who told me on this podcast that if levelling up isn't a success in his patch, it probably isn't working anywhere. So the stakes are very high indeed. So let's look at the report itself. I thought I'd just ask you all what your main, what, what was your main takeaway from the report? What was the thing that most struck you about it? As I've said, there was a huge long list of governance failings. What, what in particular stood out for you? Maybe I'll start with you, Jack. Thanks, Rob, and good to join you. There, there was such a litany um, of challenges identified in that report that it's really difficult to pin down one. But what I thought was perhaps a an obvious observation to some of the people on this uh, podcast, but quite scathing, quite damaging, really, was the idea that this deal that, that had been struck between Teesworks and uh, Chris Musgrave and Martin Corney had actually breached subsidy control requirements or is expected to breach them. And as a result, 
the review suggested that a better deal should be negotiated. And that's a that's a really kind of damaging critique of the competencies of public sector parties. Can you just explain, Jack, what, what subsidy control requirements are for the very small proportion of our listenership who don't understand that, that area? Yes, absolutely. If I step back, Chris Musgrave and, and Martin Corney obviously struck this deal where they uh, gained 90% stake in the site for a nominal value of of one pound uh, and throughout that process uh, because the taxpayer is putting quite a lot of money into the site the value of that land would have increased and essentially what that means is they benefited from the value of that land being increased after taxpayers had spent their money rather than them as priv- private developers spending their money so they've benefited from taxpayer monies interesting so that that's one of the Headlines. I mean, Jen, obviously, you spent a number of months digging into T's works. I mean, the, the, the findings of the report, were they a surprise to you or did they sort of back up the things that you kind of already had hinted at in your uh, in your reporting? So I was struck by a lot of it felt very familiar to me, but I was struck by the fact that it was in there and that they had spent as much time as they had trying to unravel it because I think there was a lot of um, scepticism at the outset that this was not really going to manage to pin down a lot of the questions that have been raised about it. And it is, I mean, there's a lawyer quoted in there somewhere that had worked on the project saying that it was the most complex set of arrangements of of its kind that they'd ever seen. So when as a journalist, you're trying to understand that, you know, you're not an expert necessarily in these land transactions. And at the same time, you can't get your hands on the information because by by its nature, it has been done in secret, which is the point that one of the many points that the report is making. You can imagine actually how difficult it actually is to put together a picture of the ins and outs of it and whether or not there, uh, there, there are any questions to answer. So when you actually see it laid out, by a bunch of local government officials who are clearly raising massive, massive questions about lots of aspects of it. Um, to be honest, there was a kind of sense of catharsis where I thought, okay, so I'm not completely insane. Um, I mean, you ask what stood out, loads of stuff stood out. I think the very end where it lists the sheer number of deals that have been struck between the same two developers and the, and the development corporation is pretty extraordinary. We knew about um, probably most of them actually because Private Eye had gradually managed to kind of um, dig them up over a, 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 um, a, a period of time. But actually, if you look at how many of these initial deals plus little side deals around things like you know, you are entitled to half the value of all of the recyclable materials on site. You are entitled to charge us commission for the marketing of stuff. Um, you know, all the various different changes to aspects of the joint venture over time between different Musgrave and Corney companies and the development corporations, some of which were not put in front of the board. Some of them were done by officers under delegated powers some of them were put in front of the board but it sounds as though the board sometimes or members of the board sometimes felt rushed or they didn't have the the necessary financial advice or legal advice to be able to agree it um confidently you know in the vast majority of cases it doesn't sound like it went up the chain to the councillors on the side on the tees valley combined authority um so i think the scale of that is quite striking when you see it all written down in black and white i think the second thing for me was the, the sheer list of aspects in which the panel was saying governance didn't appear to have worked. So 
as I said, you've got the board of the development corporation maybe not being cited on everything and or receiving reports that have got information missing and or incorrect reports and or without proper written financial legal advice. You've got the state subsidy, state control, uh, state aid stuff that Jack mentioned. Um, you've got councillors being completely apparently unaware that their own councils could potentially be liable for some of the debt that's being taken on at the project. Um, you've got councillors being told that they were not allowed to scrutinise this project. They were told that by the monitoring officer in 2021. So that's backbench councillors that you might have thought would have had the opportunity to scrutinise this stuff. And it was something I found very striking when I first looked at this that I couldn't understand and you'll know this, Rob um, and Graham, that, you know, one of your first points, ports of call when you're trying to understand something like this is to kind of go and have a look and see what scrutiny committee exists and start talking to the councillors on it and say, well, what do you reckon? How does this work then? And you would just find that nobody knew, like no, no one had had access to any information on it. Um, so I think I think um, and there were many, many other things that come through besides. But I think the many ways in which the checks and balances that you might expect didn't kick in is really striking. Um, there is, I mean, there's there's one bit where the panel says uh, it's wholly inappropriate that the private developers have been sitting in confidential public sector board meetings. Um, and I think wholly inappropriate in civil service talk is about as, as strong as it gets. And yet at the same time, you've got the councillors at local authorities taking on the liabilities potentially not cited on on, on all of this stuff. And I think the final point on the liabilities, look, we know that councils across the country are declaring bankruptcy notices left, right and centre. And I mean, I did something on this, I think in November, trying to work out the balance of sort of risk and reward in this project. And we know now that after the two developers signed this deal, uh, the, the 9010 deal in 2021, we know that in the following financial year, they tripled their profits, um, as well as various money that was charged in commission. The other thing, the flip side to that, is that you can see growing levels of debt being undertaken on behalf of the local taxpayer, um, including considerable loans from the combined authority to the Merrill Development Corporation, So, and a number of other more complex liabilities besides. But you can sort of see, if you're trying to do a balance of risk and reward, that there seems to be more and more liabilities potentially piling up for local taxpayer at the same time as it looks like a pretty lucrative set of deals for the developers. So I think if we're talking about the use of public money, that's a really fundamental point, and I'm sure we'll come back to this, but I suspect... You know, if it, if the National Audit Office were to be going in and looking at this, that would be one of the key things they would be looking at. Like, what is the balance of risk and reward? Yeah, and we will, as you say, return to the issue of whether the National Audit Office might want to investigate this uh, in uh, a little later. Um, Graham, I'm interested in your take on this. Obviously, you, uh, in your job, you speak to a lot of business leaders, businesses in the in the northeast, and it appears on this particular scheme, five hundred and sixty million pounds worth of public money has been invested in various ways, and these two local businessmen involved have not uh, put in any private finance themselves, but have made a lot of money out of it in a way that is very hard to scrutinise. I mean, what do you think local businesses will make of that? What did What do you make of it? What were your takeaways from the whole thing? I mean, we knew from earlier in the month when. 
Tees Work Limited's accounts came out that I think, as Jed said, did uh, did more than doubled uh, their uh, revenues and more than tripled their profits. And we're not talking about going up from one million to two million here. We're talking about I think one hundred and forty-two million pounds of revenues, sixty odd million pounds worth of profit. It's it's a company that's doing very well for itself and set to do better as the scheme continues. Um, the fact that you know the argument has always been we've needed these people to put the money in so we can get this thing done quickly. They're going to be taking on the risk, and that seems to have fallen down with this report. The risk seems to be substantially on the public sector and not on this company. I was interested as well to see somewhere halfway down the report um, that another company, Able UK, who have significant uh, interests along the North Sea coast and have a you know are a, are a, are a big old company, uh, also wanted to do the scheme and that that their interest never really even reached the the TVCA board. So yeah, I, to go back to your first question of what jumped out, dozens of things jumped out. It is a litany rather than one thing. Um, but I do think the business community will look at this. If they were intrigued before, they're going to be even more intrigued. You know, words like governance and transparency don't make good headlines. Um, and there's a reason why we can probably come back, we'll probably come back to Andy McDonald later. There's a reason why Andy McDonald didn't get up in Parliament and say, I have concerns about governance and transparency because no one listens. But they're really, really important. And this is a scheme that could create tens of thousands of jobs, uh, is going to involve hundreds of millions of pounds of, of public money. So for governance and transparency to not be on the money is a real a real concern. And business leaders and, and, and political leaders throughout the Northeast will be looking at this that report and saying, ooh, that's interesting, <laughs> because it, it, uh, you know, it's, it, uh, it, there's a lot. There's a lot to take in. I mean, it's worth pointing out uh, that when you mention the jobs that are coming, the report does uh, have a few lines about the, you know, the jobs that have been created and the investment that has come in as a result of what's happened already. I think off the top of my head, it was around 3,000 jobs already confirmed with 6,000 sort of uh, in, in, in the offing, which is obviously something that Ben Houchen has used when he's been in the media talking about this. But the, the lack of transparency the lack of scrutiny is a a major issue and jack i know you have uh this is something that you are very interested in in terms of how it applies to other local authorities because this development corporation in south Tees is not the only one of its kind in the country there are others i think there's a mayoral development corporation in stockport in greater manchester i think there's a couple coming in other parts of teesside in hartlepool and middlesbrough and it's a a body that has different powers to a council and is created in order to speed up the process of regeneration of an area that has struggled to regenerate it itself. So the concerns that have been raised here about scrutiny and the, the sort of secretive way that deals are done, does it seem to you like they're specific to the Tees Valley or do they raise wider questions about these bodies more widely across, across the country? Yeah, thanks, Rob. I mean, the scale of of poor governance, of the lack of transparency, the absence of scrutiny that that Jen and Graham have spoken to, I think are are probably specific to Tease Works. But in general, if we step back, the 
we do see some of these challenges and I suspect we will see more of these challenges as some of these models develop. So there's been quite a lot of work done on the financialization of local government and uh, sub-national government, so combined authorities, etc. And some of them are engaging increasingly kind of complex or novel financial and governance arrangements. And uh, largely they're called kind of special economic zones. Uh, uh, free ports come under that banner, investment zones come under that banner, and they're incredibly complex. And I'll speak to some of that in a moment. But if you look in local government, there is some evidence that their capacity and capability isn't kind of sufficient to deal with this level of complexity. And I think that applies to Teesside as well. You know, if you look at Tees Valley, it has less than 200 members of staff. That is that is a, quite a small organisation in the context of local government. So there's certainly a question of kind of competence and there's a question of accountability. With respect to accountability, the, the government published what it calls the Devolution Accountability Framework last year. And that's a, a living document that's been kind of updated, really, or is being updated to reflect the fact that Greater Manchester and the West Midlands will get single settlements. And I think as combined authorities evolve, certainly more accountability will be required and is expected of those of those combined authorities, the mayor of Greater Manchester, Andy Burnham, has said, you know, we will we will abide by these these new forms of accountability. He has he has supported them. So I think there's a recognition in some respects that there is a need for for some additional accountability as combined authorities become larger and more complex and new powers and so on. But separate to that, there's also a kind of political economy debate in some ways and. What do I mean about that? Well, on the one hand, the country desperately needs um, growth and free ports and investment zones and so on are kind of cited as one of the ways forward. It's not new in this country. It's certainly not new anywhere else. And that's because they're seen as kind of vehicles that are able to get things done quicker and therefore by their kind of very nature, by definition, you know, they their success is built on having less oversight. And so I think the kind of exam question, if we took this logical conclusion a bit further, is, you know, are examples of Teesworks in some way the kind of price that we're willing to pay for growth? You know, can we expect to see more of them? And I think that's a really interesting question. Yeah, I think this point about um, male development corporations is really interesting because I think both parties are quite interested in them for the reasons that Jack outlined, because, um, you know, we've got sluggish growth. We, we're struggling particularly to build houses. Uh, the planning system gets um, blamed an awful lot for that. And I think it's quite appealing to politicians who kind of think like, OK, we've got this vehicle that can kind of slash through red tape and we can sort of put it within the boundaries of wherever and it will just get things done. Um, and they're starting to become a feature of mayoral uh, thing stuff that mayors can do. So as you said, uh, Andy Burnham's got one in Stockport. There are three on Teesside. Um, and then there's some other examples of them in London, but they're not so much mayoral ones. They're more things for um, that have been set up for specific projects uh, over time. And um, I think my, and now Michael Gove is actually setting up one in Cambridge as well that's supposed to be about, um, you know, dramatically increasing the size of Cambridge, although that's not a mayoral one. So, 
they're expanding under the current government. And at the same time, Labour was talking a lot about growth. And um, when Keir Starmer said in his uh, speech to conference that he wanted to um, go big on new towns, the the briefing from Labour was that they were going to use a form of development corporation in order to do that for the same reason you're cutting through uh, red tape, blah, 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 blah. As Jack says, these things are a trade-off, right? Because, and the same thing was done in the 80s through uh, various uh, urban development corporations that Michael Heseltine set up, some of which were successful, some of which had problems, including the one in Teesside. Um, it's always a trade-off between the level of democratic accountability, which in itself slows things down, and delivery. And I think the issue with this one at Teesworks has been that it's been arguably the extreme end of the spectrum when it comes to uh, lack of transparency and lack of democratic oversight. So what you're looking for is some version of these models that is set up in such a way that you get that balance right. If that's overseen by a mayor, then I think you've got a question of how you get, how you make that work properly, because actually in the past, a lot of these corporations have been chaired by independent outside people. And actually the one in Stockport, um, up until his death last year, was chaired by Bob Kerslake, um, former very senior civil servant, um, as opposed to Andy Burnham. So actually there are kind of questions about how these different kind of development corporations are constituted to make sure that you get all of those balances quite right. And that sounds nerdy, but if they are supposed to be a key, key vehicle for either of the main parties in getting their growth ambitions realised then there probably needs to be a conversation about how you do that. And I think the final point I would make is that this sort of mayoral landscape is evolving at pace. And I don't think at the moment we've really got a kind of adequate financial oversight backstop that is there to check exactly what it is that's going on because some of these bodies are have had and will get substantial amounts of capital uh, investment. And we, we know that the National Audit Office... Um, doesn't have a remit over them because they're not national projects, they're local projects. And it seems to me that at the moment, I'm not suggesting that we tie it up in layers and layers of central bureaucracy because that's going against the point. But there probably needs to be some mechanism that is able to track exactly how public money is being used. Absolutely. Well, um, sounding nerdy, that is uh, very much the uh, the stocking trade of this podcast. So always happy to entertain points of that nature. Um, Graham, I'm interested in, we mentioned Andy McDonald uh, earlier. So he is the MP for Middlesbrough, was Labour until a few months ago. He's had the uh, suspended by his party for things that he said, and he's now standing as an independent. But he kind of put a firework up this whole debate by claiming in the Commons that there was truly shocking industrial scale corruption going on at Teesworks. And obviously, worth repeating, the report says there's no evidence to back up that claim. And I was, I was watching a, a debate about the report in the Commons, and it, basically it, it broke down into the Conservatives repeating the fact there is no corruption and calling on Andy MacDonald to apologise and retract his remarks because he was able to say them using parliamentary privilege, which is this quite old-fashioned notion, I guess, that if an MP says something in the Commons, uh, he can't be sued for libel. He has legal protection, and that allows uh, he or she to raise points on behalf of their 
constituents. And it's been pointed out that he would not have said that outside the Commons because he could have potentially have been sued for it. And then on the Labour side, and we'll come to, back to this in a minute, uh, all the MPs were saying, it's a damning litany of governance failures, and now the National Audit Office should get involved. So it seems like uh, the two sides have made their got their respective talking points. But just on Andy McDonald, I mean, where do you think this leaves him? I've, I've heard him on the radio sticking very much sticking to his guns. I mean, is is he uh, in a bit of trouble now, or do you think uh, he he he's going to sort of remain? taking the view that he is. Well, he's certainly not going to apologise or backtrack on what he says. He won't repeat what he said outside of Parliament for the reasons you've just said. But I think his his view is, uh, as I sort of alluded to earlier, if I hadn't said this, this report wouldn't have happened and we wouldn't know what we now know. And I suspect that's probably true. Where I think Andy McDonald has handed his political opponents a win is that he's allowed them to take the small bit of the report that said no corruption, no illegality, which is a pretty crucial part, but it's, it's a small part. And he allowed m- mass ranks of Northeast Tory MPs to get up and say, Andy MacDonald must apologise for that thing he said, which has been proved to be wrong. And it, and you can see the, the statements from from Ben Houchen, from the Teesworks developers, uh, from, a, from a lot of people, a lot of Conservatives in the Northeast, all they're talking about is Andy McDonald, and that allows us to say, well, it's nothing to do with the other 70-odd pages, which are about this litany of failures. So Andy McDonald, as you alluded to earlier, is currently suspended from the Parliamentary Labour Party for saying something which we could argue is a bit injudicious at a, at a pro-Palestinian rally. He said something possibly a bit overblown in Parliament as well. And I think what he's done is handed the Conservatives and uh, the, the get-out that they need, that we don't need to talk about this quite technical, dull stuff about transparency and governance um, and the fact, that, <laughs> the fact that board members are told things 20 minutes before they go into the room and have to uh, decide what to do with hundreds of millions of pounds worth of government money. It's not about that. It's about Andy McDonald. And so Simon Clark can stand up and say, point of order, he must, uh, you know, he must, um, he must respond. You know, I thought it was striking that uh, the government minister, Lee Rowley, stands up. And almost the first thing he says is, I notice uh, the minister for Middlesbrough isn't in the, in the, um, in the chamber. And uh, a mate of Andy McDonald, Ian Lavery, an MP in Northumberland, says, point of order, you know why he's not here. He's he's recovering from an operation. And the speaker, the deputy speaker, tries to get Lee Raleigh to apologise for this. And he, and he gives the, the most mealy-mouthed apology. And I, this, this is what I'm afraid. The whole thing has descended into Conservative members attacking uh, Andy McDonald, Labour members attacking Teesworks. And so it's it's almost like one of those those by-elections where you, when you know one party has won, but everyone turns up on the telly the next morning saying, this was a victory for us, or is a moral victory for us. Everyone's taken the Teesworks report to show that it has backed up what they've been saying all along. And very few people are uh, getting to grips with the, with some of these really, you know, the, one of the recommendations was something like ensure the board gets information in a timely manner so they can understand it that's a recommendation i would have thought that was kind of you know something that should be fairly obvious the report is is there's so much in there that you think wow this is not great but if it turns into a labor 
Tory slanging match, which, which it has. Politics on Teesside right now are toxic. They're so entrenched. Uh, there is such, you, you know, I, I, you go on social media and, and you just see people and you think, oh my Lord, I'm not getting involved in this. And I think this report, through no fault of the authors, by the way, I think they've done a really thorough job. It, it's just allowed both sides to go, yep, I told you I was right all along, which gets us absolutely nowhere. Jack, perhaps you can help us with the issue of whether the National Audit Office should be involved in this. Because it, it, um, Michael Gove, uh, he took the decision to um, appoint three senior local government people, including the chief executive of Lancashire County Council. So people with some experience and clout to look into this. But Labour, their main attack point now is this is such a serious report that, that the National Audit Office should look into it. My understanding is that the National Audit Office was not really set up to look at local projects like this. They have more of a sort of central government remit. But I mean, is is there any likelihood, do you think, or any case for, for them now turning their considerable investigative resources to, to looking at this? Yeah, I would agree with your interpretation, I think, Rob. Um, there's a, a kind of long history of intervening in local authorities in particular, and much of that looks like improvement boards in local authorities, um, which is normally individuals of repute from local government or associated with local government or sub-regional government in some way, convening as a panel to take a view on a set of issues. Now, I think what this report has showed is that this shouldn't be the end of the story, and now something perhaps more substantive needs to take place. But in the first instance, I thought it was sensible that this uh, review was constituted in the way that it was rather than via the NAO for the reasons that you've outlined. That doesn't mean that there aren't other things now that government can't or shouldn't do. So we heard uh, earlier this week that Middlesbrough, case in point, you know, is uh, being intervened in. That took place last year. The letter that came out this week was basically saying that the government was continuing to intervene in, in Middlesbrough until it made sufficient progress. And there's a longer history in in local authorities than there is in combined authorities, of course, because combined authorities are are newer interventions. They've been about for a decade. But there is precedent. So last year, the government intervened in Cambridgeshire and Peterborough, combined authority for poor governance. It issued what's called a a best value notice, basically, when the government is concerned with, with either governance or transparency or combination of them all. And it's not sure that those organisations can fulfil their obligations in legislation. And I think what we see in the the Teesworks review is the challenges across Tees Valley are of the same kind of scale or even worse than what's happened in Cambridgeshire and Peterborough, I would say. So I think there's a good case to be made around whether or not intervention of some form should take place in the future. Now, for the government's part, they've set out that they want a response from Tees Valley uh, by the end of uh, by the beginning of March 8th of March many have suggested that it might end there from for electoral reasons which I don't have a a view on but I think at that point some form of action would be sensible Tees Valley in special measures wouldn't look particularly good on a, a campaign uh, leaflet and um Jen I was just going to come to you as the the last point obviously we can't take the the party politics uh, out out of this, and Ben Houchin is 
up for re-election uh, in May. I think when we had you on the podcast last time, we we ch- chatted about the likelihood that the Teesworks reports would sway voters one way or another in terms of how they how they vote. I mean, what hunch do you have about what impact, if any, this will have on voters when they decide whether to put a, a cross or a tick next to Ben Houchin's name uh, on May the 2nd? Yeah, I mean, just a, a, just a quick follow on on the point about the National Audit Office. I think that the NAO is in the same position it was this time last spring when this story kind of uh, sort of post Andy McDonald and when there was a lot of talk about all of this stuff, which is that they cannot go in and look at a project uh, like this unless Michael Gove specifically asks them to. And it's to do with the definition of central government money going into it, basically. So is it likely that effectively Turkey's vote for Christmas and Michael Gove says, yes, I'd love the National Audit Office to go in and have a look at this? Certainly doesn't look like it from the politics of it at the moment. And as, But as Jack says, the best value notice thing, that is something that the department kind of routinely does and did do in Cambridge and Peterborough. I'd also add that in terms of the other thing that has not yet come through off the back of this, the auditors, the external auditors for um, T's, which bit of it, the Development Corporation, I want to say, but one of the many bodies involved in this anyway, the external auditors put their audit on hold for this assurance review to come back. So what does the external audit end up saying about value for money? That could be interesting and worth watching. Um, In terms of the election, I think for all of the reasons that um, Graham described earlier on, um, you know, this is a very complicated thing to explain in a headline in many respects. And the fact that, you know, no corruption in inverted commas has been found, um, that's not me saying that there is corruption, but simply that is the kind of top headline that the Conservatives will be Uh, taking out of this uh, at the mayoral election. The fact that that is the case allows a very clear message from the Conservatives in the mayoral election. And the the contrasting Labour message on this stuff is is a harder sell. It's more complicated. You have very low turnout in mayoral elections. And also Ben Houchin has already been out with some very kind of primary colours, very Ben Houchin-y pledges around I'm going to build a tunnel under the T's and I'm going to fix the transporter bridge and I'm going to do that. So he's already hit the ground running in terms of a list of very kind of retail politics kind of, kind of pledges. Um, so, you know, do I think that this report in and of itself is necessarily enough to kind of scoop the mayoralty from Ben Houchin by Labour? Um, I, I have my doubts, but I... Um, I've learned before not to predict elections, so I, I won't be doing it today either. Very wise, very wise. Well, the one thing we can be absolutely sure of is that it's going to rumble on and on. Which way it's going to go, we're, we're not sure, but there'll be plenty of more fascinating debate about it. Um, I want to say thank you to uh, to Graham, to Jack and to Jen, and I hope you uh, you found the debate on Teesworks interesting, and uh, we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast. And don't forget, you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk. It's more important than ever for Northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons, and it's produced by Daniel J. McLaughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. 
Also, check out the other Laudable podcasts. See you next week. Bye-bye. <laughs>